I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hello, you're listening to The BIP Show. BIP is for business, investing, and policy. That's what we're here to talk about. I'm Paul Colgan, director at CT Group. I'm here with James Whelan, macro strategist and investment manager at VFS Group. G'day, James. G'day, Paul. How's it going, mate? It is going very well. Joining us on the line from Amsterdam, too, is Ken Vexler, managing director and chief investment officer at Acumen Management. Hello, Ken. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, Colgo. Uh, Good to be here. Uh, we are uh, recording this in Sydney uh, on the 17th of September 2020. Don't forget to subscribe, rate and leave a review wherever you get your podcasts. Now, after going big on investing last week with Con Michalakis, we're going to look a bit more at the policy side of things this week. Uh, it's a bit of a change of pace for us uh, with our guest, Dr. Ashley Frawley, who, to my mind, has been one of the most interesting new commentators uh, on global affairs to emerge in recent years. Uh, she talks about some of the social phenomena we are seeing in Western societies around the world, including on things like disillusionment with the establishment in both politics and business, disillusionment with globalization, or the rush to have government solve every single problem that comes along. Regular listeners will know we take an interest in how the new political dynamics we've seen emerging in the US and Europe have had all sorts of knock-on effects in markets. So it's worth exploring uh, some of ideas around why this is the case, uh, as it is important to every investor, executive, and indeed worker. Uh, Ashley's book, currently being updated, is called The Semiotics of Happiness, Rhetorical Beginnings of a Public Problem, which looks at how there's been a growing push in Western culture to deliver happiness, whatever that means to people. Uh, And I'm I'm hoping we'll show in the course of our chat uh, how this leads to a whole bunch of problems for um, liberal democracies and capitalist systems. She is a senior lecturer in public health policy and social sciences at Swansea University in the UK, which is where she joins us from today. Ashley, welcome to the show. Hi, thanks for having me. Let's get straight in. Something you explore in your book is what you call the paradox of prosperity, that despite economic progress, people don't seem to be much happier. Uh, You know, it's a big question, but maybe you can start there. Um, You know, COVID downturns notwithstanding. Uh, we are wealthier now than at any time in history. Billions of people have been lifted out of poverty in recent decades. Uh, there aren't ma- any major cross-border hot wars to speak of. So why are people so angry about things? Well, it's not really clear that... Um, well, yes, okay, so people are angry about particular issues. Um, but in terms of the paradox of prosperity, how it's usually framed is that in spite of some material or economic indicator, people are no happier than they were... Um, say in the 1940s, when um, these happiness surveys began. So that's that's really what became a, a very big issue, the sort of headline kind of claim of this happiness movement that emerged in a really big way around 2003 in the UK and has since been institutionalized into policy around the world. Um, and basically what that says is, um, so what they, they started doing these happiness surveys in about 1948. And uh, around the late 90s, they started to graph these um, happiness rates uh, over time against economic indicators like GDP or rising wages, always something material. And they would say, oh, look at this, big surprise. People are just as happy or they are no happier than they were in 1948 or in the late uh, late 40s uh, in spite of huge uh, progress economically. So then what is all this progress for? What is all this prosperity for if it doesn't make us happy? So that was the big claim that got repeated again and again. Probably some of your listeners have heard it at some point. I remember I heard it when I was a teenager. It was the first time that I heard it. Um, And I, you know, considering myself this kind of like punk rock kid, I thought, yeah, you know, consumerism, money doesn't make you happy and that kind of thing. It had this kind of leftist ring to it. Um, But it also appealed to, it really appealed across the political divide. So for left-wingers, it had this kind of vaguely left-wing ring to it, as I said, but also 
for conservatives, it it kind of spoke to this Protestant ethic, right? Like, um, you know, you you shouldn't want to consume too much and so on. Um, and so when uh, an issue or a claim has that kind of cross or that bipartisan appeal, it's quite likely to become uh, quite likely to become uh, quite big and be repeated. But as I was studying it, I, I, I realized it's always some kind of material indicator. But nobody ever said, like, in spite of huge leaps in women's equality since 1948, we are no happier. What is all this equality for? <laughs> you know, ladies, back into the kitchen. Or, like, in spite of huge um, progress in terms of, you know, ethnic minorities. Um, or the NHS in the UK. What is the NHS for if it hasn't made us any happier? So when something like it, it, it starts to fall apart because what happens is these uh, happiness surveys ask people to rate themselves, usually on a scale, they'll say like, are you not so happy or very, you know, all the way up to very happy. So if you're like absolutely ecstatic, you can't really register that. Um, or on a scale of, of one to 10. And most people will rate themselves about as about a seven. And they have done for, you know, well, since since the, the mid-20th century when they started um, giving these surveys. So the more likely answer is that, well, that's just how people rate themselves on these surveys. You know, if you, if you gave me a happiness survey in 1800, I wouldn't be sitting there thinking, well, you know, I haven't got a flying car. We haven't got uh, electricity yet, so I'm going to be a three. No, you, you rate yourself on the basis of the world that exists for you. You know, like, I'm not starving. Uh, I can't complain. But that then became a reason to question prosperity. So when something happens like that, and the claim itself, once you actually look at it, it starts to fall apart. Once you start to interrogate it, it starts to fall apart. And yet it becomes so powerful and pervasive. That tells you that there's something in the culture. When people hear it, they want to believe it, even if it's not true. And that's what I find very interesting. So part of this as well, though, is that uh, this, the, the continuing promises that we can you know, life will be better, right? So most politicians will talk about how they're going to improve people's lives. So is part of this that, you know, um, the disillusionment with, you know, we talk about broken promises or you didn't, you know, that it's just impossible to please people in those ways. So you get this kind of growing gap between, uh, you know, what you call in the book sort of claims making by different interest groups and then a politician or a leader comes along and says, this is what I'm going to deliver. Um, and even when it's done, so you make progress on different things, uh, income, uh, unemployment, uh, equality, you mentioned, you may, you can make progress on those things, but people still feel that not enough has been done. Yeah. I mean, people, that's the kind of the human condition, right? There's a problem. We want to solve it. Um, capitalism introduced us to a much more dynamic understanding of wealth and freedom than had existed for most of human history. I mean, if you look at feudalism, wealth was concentrated in very few hands and, and, it, and it changed very, very little. I mean, like when you, if you were born a peasant, you died a peasant. Now within capitalism, while not everybody can um, move up the class order, you know, at will, um, many people can. And so you have a possibility of movement, you have a possibility of growth, you have a possibility of um, perfectibility, as uh, philosophers called it. Um, and so we, we want that, but there's also this sense of exhaustion, as you say, that um, well, you, you people, you want too much. <laughs> and also, there's a sense of exhaustion at some problems that are stubbornly resistant to change. And so policymakers will make promises to solve these problems, but there are certain things that just, they just can't be solved. So yes, on the whole, uh, a country may get richer, but you still have class inequality, you still have, uh, you know, ethnic inequalities, that sort of thing. And these things have been really stubborn, to, um, you know, really, really resistant to change. And so what's happened is, because we can't really change the broader structures of society, or at least that's become the consensus, you know, there is no alternative to capitalism, both left and right kind of go into people's heads and try to fix them there. <laughs> you know, so we, we try to solve these issues, but on the whole, they can't really be solved. And so they be, people become more and more obsessed with what's in between people's ears. Um, and 
you know, the self-esteem movement in the 80s and 90s promised that it was going to be a social vaccine. You know, it was going to be this panacea for social problems. You just build people's self-esteem and they will have the confidence to get better jobs. Women will have the confidence to fight the patriarchy. You know, uh, an issue like that really became very, very powerful. Um, but of course that didn't work. Um, it didn't uh, make good on its promises because, you know, the reason why we have, you know, for instance, uh, educational inequalities isn't lack of self-esteem. It's a much, much deeper issue. Um, and so that gets left behind. But what's interesting is that the newer kind of therapeutic fads like happiness, as I studied, are much more pessimistic. It's not really about changing people's, or mindfulness is, is, is particularly good for this. Um, it's not really about changing people's um, uh, subjectivity or their minds to make to solve problems, but to make them feel okay about those problems not being solved. Um, and that's Obviously, nobody comes out and says that, but for instance, John Kabat-Zinn, the sort of um, guru of the mindfulness movement, he says it's not about solving problems, it's about feeling at peace within the maelstrom. And I think that's a, a pretty good, that en encapsulates kind of the mission of these therapeutic ideas, the new ones. Actually, I just, sorry, Ashley, I just wanted to jump in there and, and sort of, you, you've led me to the point that I was hoping to ask about or, or make. You mentioned that when you know when the surveys are taken, these happiness surveys over the course of the last however many decades, you know answers generally tend to, you know people sort of tend to answer to around the seven mark. You know their, their overall happiness is about a seven out of ten. Um, whether that's actually the case or not, you know whether they they you know genuinely believe that or not, how much of that has got to do with keeping up with the Joneses, with putting on a face, as it were, to the rest of the world to say, well. You know, uh, the neighbours down the road are happy, whether they're happy or not, but they're telling us that they're happy. So we have to be as happy or we have to sort of be in relative lockstep with with them. And I mean, obviously, if you broaden that out to a global phenomenon and a, and a cultural psyche, how much of that is, is relevant here? Well, there's a lot of debate within the literature as to what exactly these happiness surveys are measuring. And one of the answers to that is that it's um, measuring what we call cultural feeling rules. So within a particular culture, you have um, certain expectations around how you feel or how you're supposed to answer. You know, and, and you can see this in these kind of formulaic questions that we have. You know, how are you? I'm fine, thanks. If you, if you ask somebody, how are you? And, you? and the person starts telling you how terrible things are, it's a bit awkward. Um, and that's, that's a cultural feeling rule. Um, people aren't lying. That's just the rule. That's how you answer. Um, and so there's something, maybe something similar going on there. Um, but also you do compare yourself to other people around you, right? So um, there have been studies in, um, in Calcutta, for example, of the poorest of the poor, um, slum dwellers, street sleepers, and prostitutes. And what the psychologists concluded from that when they gave these people happiness surveys was that they are not as unhappy as we might expect. Uh, and they said, why do we have this um, uh, stereotype of poor people being unhappy? And I found that one of the more disgusting studies I've ever read because people's tendency to make the best of a bad situation and their complete and utter hopelessness about changing that situation um, becomes a reason to keep them there. Uh, and I think this is what happens, right? We, you know, if you ask me in 1800 how happy I was, well, if I had a good husband, you know, <laughs> I, you know, I would, oh, I'm blessed, you know. I'm not starving like the people in the workhouse. Oh, I'm blessed. But that doesn't mean that there's no point to progress. And indeed, um, that's not why progress happens. It, it doesn't happen to uh, make people happy. Progress, the motor of progress is something else. So, uh, g'day, Dr. Frawley, uh, James here from Sydney. Uh, but uh, look, I'm going to ask you the, the obvious question, which one of your first years would probably ask you, the obvious sort of next stage on this one, which is that what if, what if, what if we're not really ever supposed to be 100% happy? Like that's, that's, obviously, the, that's obviously the point, right? Like, Sorry. Uh, okay, Ken, Ken's, I've got Amsterdam Ken over there. It's okay, but, but yeah. what if that's not? There's two things. There's two things that I would do if I was in one advertising or two politics, which is always like the scene that you need to set for people, which is that what you have is not enough, and you need a little bit more, and that and that what you have. If I was in politics, that what you have right now is also not enough, and you need a little bit more. And if you go with me, with my product or with my vote, then I will fulfil that for you. And that's that's the, is that is that the scenario that has been set? So therefore, that's the conditioning that we have. I'm sorry if that's a first year question for you, but the. Well, 
yeah, so on the surface of it, absolutely. When it comes to like selling a product, um, you want to kind of, <laughs> you know, you have to create a deficit first. And interestingly, that's kind of what happiness um, proponents or uh, advocates do. Um, if you look at the the claims that they were making at the very, very beginning, they weren't responding to problems already existing in society. They were creating a problem. That was that that those were their first claims that there is a problem that you you're not aware of. And I'm going to tell you about it because I've got the answer. And a, a lot of these um, therapeutic kind of fads, they start like that. So mindfulness, for example, the first claims wasn't like, oh, it's going to solve all these existing problems, much less people out in the street or striking saying, we want a well-being day. We want, you know, my boss has to give me mindfulness. Like nobody was demanding this. The first claims were, um, we, you know, there is this problem that you're not aware of, that you don't even know it because your mind is so disordered, you don't even know that you need this. And we need to um, prescribe mindfulness for everybody. And then, uh, you know, like, and no matter how small the problem is, mindfulness can help. So then uh, they say GPs should be prescribing mindfulness and so on. And uh, there should be huge state spending on it without there ever being any demand. They create the demand first. And then people start to take it up. GPs start to prescribe it. It starts to, you know, people start uh, selling books. And then they see that uptake, the success of that project as an indicator of how bad we've got it, how unhappy people are. But you told people, no matter how small the problem, everyone could use a little mindfulness. Or even if you don't have any problems, you could use a little bit of mindfulness. So then it becomes like, oh, we're all so miserable. But actually, people are not all that miserable. I mean, look at the happiness surveys. Everyone keeps saying, like, regardless of, like, economic crisis, the Cuban missile crisis, all that, everyone goes, yeah, I'm about a seven. You know, we have an incredible ability to adapt. Um, so I think that these th two things are kind of separate in terms of our desires, our, our desire to change things and our own personal happiness. But the fact that people tend to rate themselves as fairly happy regardless of what goes on, instead of saying, well, actually, maybe these indicators aren't really telling us anything of use, it became, by policymakers, it became a reason to, to um, dampen down expectations. So that was kind of, what, and, and it was politicized very early on, all the way back in the 1960s in the United States, there were attempts by um, the government at that time to politicize happiness. And it was completely shot down. Um, where people said, yeah, you can talk about a politics of happiness, but we've got people starving. We've got um, all kinds of social problems. Um, so how can you talk about like optimizing or like giving people happiness that, you know, using this kind of science of happiness? And then, but by 2003, when it was politicized again, it became this like, well, people want too much. And that's the problem. Do you wanna... The problem is our, our expectations. Do you want to go And more... so we need to dampen down expectations. Oh, well, I've been dampening down expectations for most of my adult life, Dr. Frawley. The, uh, the, the, do you want to go more into that? Into that because it's something that's always bitten me a bit as well. Is that is that the relativity of happiness? That mm -hmm. that I I'm not going to mention anyone who I happen to be married to. James, we need new windows, or we need a second level, or we need something. And and and, but don't you understand that? People are starving on the other side of the world. Or what's uh, what, like name the, the the obvious, the elephant in the room now, the COVID situation, which is, oh look look at this, people are dying. Well, more people die of starvation, and then, okay, but we don't handle it. And, and so immediately, every single issue that that is making me unhappy has to be immediately countered with a there is something that should be make you less happy. And there, and there's that, that that science of relativity. Did you want to did you want to go into that because I, I could see you sort of touching on it. I thought that might be might be close to you. Yeah, I mean, that's one of the things that people say is that um, happiness is, is relative and um, like uh, your economic position, for example, is, is, you know, how happy you are with your economic position is relative. Um, and so then that, again, becomes a reason to say, well, it's your fault. There's something psychologically wrong with you because uh, objectively you are better off than you were, but you're not any happier because you're still you still have less. Um, and that has like a, because you still have less than someone else. And I remember I did a, a show on uh, UK television um, called uh, The Big Questions on BBC. And um, I remember that they were talking about the, the uh, it was about happiness. And, and the people on the panel were like, oh, it's so sad because, you know, people, um, they want what other people have, you know, it's keeping up with the Joneses. 
Um, and I, you know, it reminds me of this quote from Wage, Labor, and Capital from Karl Marx, where he says, a house may be large or small, but as long as the surrounding houses are likewise small, it satisfies all requirements for a residence. But let there arise uh, next to the house a castle, and the little house shrinks to a hut. And the people on the panel all start nodding approvingly. As though Karl Marx was like, oh, workers of the world, don't uh, envy the bourgeoisie. Be happy with what you have. Absolutely not. He was saying that that castle represents what human beings are capable of today. It was, in fact, it was probably built with your labor. You probably built it. It is being kept from you. That is wrong. Go out and take it. So the point is that we have, like, human beings have the ability to progress, to create enormous material wealth. And that material wealth gives us the freedom to not be trapped in our circumstances. You know, those people in Calcutta, they're stuck there. They can't do anything about it. And, then, and in fact, like, and, they, and it's sad that they weren't as happy as you might expect because they were making the best of a bad situation. In fact, one of the anomalies that the researchers pointed out was that when they asked them, if you could go back in time and change anything about your life, would you change anything? And every single one of them said, I would change everything. <laughs> so there's, um, you know, but they felt completely powerless. And so it's about the fact that we are unhappy with our situation, that happiness is relative, um, at least from an older leftist perspective that's now gone, was about the fact that there was, there's a, an amount, a level of human progress that is possible that the vast majority of humanity don't have access to. And that's the injustice, not the feeling that arises from it. Okay, so, so that gives me sort of leads me to two questions one and and i'm going to try and tie them together and, and see if, if if i can get you to, to respond please uh, ashley one is uh we're talking about the age-old question are you labor or are you capital right uh we, which category do you individually not you obviously yourself but we as people fall into because the people in calcutta or the people living next door to karl marx's castle they're clearly labor they are not capital uh, the ability to become capital, uh, can they, will they? I mean, we, we don't live in such a world that the people in Calcutta can, just by deciding that they no longer want to be Labour, can all of a sudden tomorrow become capital. So that's one question. I mean, how, how, do, you, how do you make that transition or how is that transition feasible on a larger ongoing scale under the current, you know, age, you know, centuries-old system that we're living in? That's one question. The other question, sorry, is... Surely happiness, putting it in, I suppose, economically theoretical terms, happiness is not unlike utility. Every individual, be it literally an individual or a corporate or whatever, has their own unique utility curve. So my happiness or my fulfillment, uh, economically, let's say, is different to yours, to Colgo's, to James's, to my next door neighbours, the dog down the road, etc. So... And, and, and that's fine, and that drives the overall system. The question is, are we trying to marry one utility curve for everyone in terms of happiness, or is it okay that everyone sits differently on vague, you know, on, on vaguely different curves in terms of their happiness? I mean, never shall the twains meet, or, or where are we on that? So these are two very big and different questions. So the um, apologies. So, uh, <laughs> um, so do the uh, slum dwellers and so on have the ability to become capital or capitalists? Yeah, individuals can, um, but the whole class as a, like they can't emancipate themselves as a class. Like not everybody in the world can become a capitalist. Not everybody in the world can become a manager, um, because some people have to be the workers. You have to. Um, you have to employ some people. There's some people are out of work at a, at, a, at any given time, um, as part of just the labor market. The, the way that the labor market works, and the way the price of labor winds up being regulated. So, the structure of the system means that individuals can emancipate themselves, and we have, and, and in that sense, we have much greater freedom than has ever been available to human beings in the past. Uh, but we're not fully free because not everybody can do that. Um, and so some people are able to, you know, be capitalists, work if they want to work, but they don't have to. But the vast majority of people need to work in order to survive or beg, as the people in Calcutta do. Um, uh, and then the, about the utility curve. Um, yeah, I, I think that's exactly what happens. Sometimes I use the example of the way that the logic that a lot of these um, sort of happiness policies work is like, Oh, 90% of the population, let's say we're in Canada where I'm from, 90% of the population likes ice hockey. 
Hey, you 10%, what's wrong with you? <laughs> Go like hockey. Don't you see it will make you happy? And they, they, they literally do that. So they'll say like, oh, um, those who are religious tend to be happier. So you should go be religious. And literally, like, a lot of the, the articles, the claims will end with, like, a 10-point list. Get married. Be religious. You know, do get Scottish a, get dancing. Get a dog. Yeah, yeah. Um, actually, the dog thing is more for, like, length of life. I've actually never seen anyone say that we should get pets. That's an interesting one. It's usually, it's usually religion and marriage. That's what they'll say. Oh, God. So if you are a crotchety person who uh, doesn't believe in marriage, well... How dare you? <laughs> you are responsible for your own unhappiness. So can I ask about this? Um, just going back to the to Marx's castle. Um, mm-hmm. You know, the hut is, is fine to live in until somebody comes along and builds, builds a palace beside it. Um, one of the things we talk about a fair bit is about how um, central banking policy uh, has been inflating asset, asset prices. Mm-hmm. Um, and... You know, in some parts of Europe and, and absolutely in the United States, there are enormous and very visible uh, disparities in wealth, you know. Um, uh, and it's, it's really apparent in, in a lot of parts of Asia, of course. But but the disparities in wealth uh, are driving a lot of the sort of political fissures uh, that we're seeing as well. So... Um, you know, uh, tr- uh, use a use the simple uh, and biggest example: Trump uh, appealing to sort of the forgotten workers of America. Um, you know, the Rust Belt, uh, these industrial areas that have kind of been hollowed out by um, globalization. All right, but can you talk about how you think that? Because and, and a lot of that sort of uh, sorry, the, the wealth disparity w- when it comes to asset prices. If you had assets a decade ago, you are now very rich. Right, um, uh, and a lot of those assets are out of your price range if you if you've just been working. Right, so how do you think that uh, wealth disparity that we've seen emerge in the last decade uh, it might be affecting uh, economic policy? I think it's um, interesting because sometimes you see this. Um, you know, people will talk about wealth disparity and talk about inequality. Um, but in terms of actually solving that in a real way, there's less of a sense of how to actually do that and a lot of pessimism in terms of ever being able to do that. And I think a lot of this, these kinds of, you know, this whole happiness movement, part of it was this attempt to kind of dampen down desire as though desire itself is what makes people unhappy. Um, and that was like, that became like a very big deal. If you look at the Equality Trust in the UK, um, they would talk about, uh, well, and also there was this very big book by um, Wilkinson and Pickett about the uh, the um, this uh, the spirit level, and basically saying that inequality, countries that are more equal around the world are happier and have fewer social problems and so on. Of course, it was revealed later that they cherry picked their data, um, but they weren't talking about like raising everybody up, making the whole world wealthy. It was more about the, they were more concerned about the psychological issues that arise from desire, from wanting what other people have. Because the whole, like if you look at Western countries, and indeed the whole world, everybody is a little bit richer. But what's happened is we've raised everybody up a level, but we still, those who are rich got very, very rich, and those who are poor got a little bit richer. And yet still we have the same problems. But so... If the idea is, but for these people, the idea is, well, if everybody got a little bit richer uh, and still we have these problems, what was the point? Objectively, poor people live better than kings did 500 years ago, but they're poor and they're still miserable in the sense of not having any control over their lives and so on. Although they don't say that. Uh, They'll say, well, but they're still not as happy, right? So then the idea was that um, really what we need to do is dampen down desire and um, make people feel better and, and, and stop people from wanting to keep up with the Joneses. Um, and so because this, this, it seems as though if you make everybody richer, you're not going to actually solve these problems. But, it, but going back to what Karl Marx said, it's because all of society is progressing and you're keeping people out. Uh, you know, people aren't stupid. They know what other people have. And they want that too. And I think that desire is actually a progressive force, even though it produces political volatility and sometimes violence. Um, It's about making things better, materially better, for the mass of humanity, because we can, 
so because the, that possibility is there. Yeah, and, and and it's been and it's been the that enticement, that carrot, if you will, the the, the carrot of in, of enticement of possibility, which has driven us to continue to to go and do things, to to, to make well, to. I think actually we don't we don't um, it, we produced this uh, wealth and prosperity kind of as an offshoot, kind of by accident, because we don't pursue wealth and prosperity as an end in itself. We pursue it through indirectly through the medium of profit, and the profit motive doesn't even have to be people being greedy. Like you could like look at capitalists; tons of them are are like will preach against greed specifically. Like they will be all about meditation and living in the moment and so on, but by nature you you have to make a profit like by the nature of the system itself because if you don't you won't be able to reinvest you won't be competitive uh and you'll go be a worker yourself yeah I, and, and and in defense of, of capitalism because i i'm one of the, the at the forefront of people who have said that capitalism has sort of lost its way at the moment uh, a bit more into into that crony side of things sort of that late stage of capitalism that we're in of that there's there's yes you need to make a profit and that is that is the system that that says but there's no there's no rule that says that you need to hoard every single dollar and and have and have the mansion, have the biggest house. You 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 know there's that that's not the way that it's supposed to carry on. What I want to ask. No, you- indeed, and the best the best capitalists don't do that. They reinvest everything. Like look at Warren Buffett. He still lives in like a middle class little house. Um, he reinvests everything. So the best capitalists don't do that. Um, but it's still the uh, it's still the logic of capitalism. So we will we still have this sort of Protestant ethic going on where it's like, oh, you shouldn't consume. You should just just do it because you're supposed to like that because it's good for society. So the the logic of the system isn't even about hoarding wealth. It's about accumulation. It's about reinvesting as much as possible to be a successful capitalist. Okay, so we've talked about we've talked about rising everyone up and that people still aren't happy and that and that people in different parts of the world still not happy and that and effectively chasing a tail. So. Dr. Frawley, what's what's the what's the end game? What's the um, where does it go? Well, either what's the solution, or where does it where does it actually end up if you play the tape to the end? Well, that's the that's the big question. That's what's um, animating me at the moment is following these trends to their logical conclusions. Because yes, I agree with you. Capitalism has lost its way. Ca- capitalism is a wonderful progressive system. It's produced wealth beyond our ancestors' wildest dreams. It's produced freedoms that we, you know, to fly from one end of the earth to the other. We become totally different as human beings because we can do that. Um, But I think, yeah, we've lost this kind of optimistic impulse, this idea that with that freedom comes the ability of human beings to direct their own lives as they see fit. We're now saying, you know, we have this very pessimistic idea that progress is a myth um, and, you know, taking risks is is looked down upon i mean like like look how risk averse we are as a culture um even you know with covid we knew that there was a particular epidemiological profile of risk in relation to who is likely to get very sick but we had to say it would affect everybody equally people would say oh it's an equal opportunity killer it was not <laughs> but any kind of tiny risk was something that everybody had to guard against. Um, and so this idea that you would uh, gamble, take a risk, um, and create something um, is less and less. It's much more profitable to inflate uh, asset prices, to do buybacks, um, you are correct. that sort of thing. You are correct, Dr. Than- yeah, risk has Risk <laughs> has been sucked out of the capitalist system, and, and, and that's been the sort of well the secret for for our success for the well last that's right years. well certainly it's a very good working example in, in australia um for um uh, i've mentioned it a couple of times on um on different episodes but how what we're missing uh in a in certainly in australia but it's uh, it also applies to other advanced economies uh is um business risk so so capital investment uh on new projects um you know that part of the the GDP equation, which is building new big things, you know, taking risks mm-hmm. on new projects, um, you know, capital doing what it's what it what it should do to serve society well, um, which is you know like let's get out there and build you know new things that are going to be useful and but you know everything has a big ruler over it at the moment. Well, does that make a does that make me an eight percent internal rate of return? If no, if you can't prove it, 
<laughs> you know, yes. like moonshots. Um, you know, Google's moonshot uh, pro pro um, projects are a really good example. But they seem to be confined to only a small number now of um, of companies, rather than a general uh, spirit. That is a a general spirit across uh, across economies, and that is a very subjective uh, uh, take from me. Um, uh, but uh, to to your point about the very pe pessimistic. Uh, uh, Thing, you know, trends that we see in society that you talked about, Ashley. Uh, you know, in our work, we do a lot of um, uh, research with with people. And I was actually last night. Uh, I was at some focus groups. Uh, I'm watching them, and I have to say, it always makes me enormously optimistic listening to people talking about how they see the world. They're very rational, mm -hmm. uh, uh, very level. Um, you know. I think people like us, you know, in, in, you know, in the kind of circles we move in and the kind of media we consume, we see a lot of disaster and, you know, a lot of stress and all of that kind of stuff. And actually, you know, most people are quite level-headed, can analyse issues in society quite uh, rationally, uh, and they, you know, they're uh, enjoying, you know, being themselves, doing what they're doing. They're battling at the moment, obviously, with COVID, but... A, are they happy? And B... Does it matter? Well, we weren't specifically. See, are they telling the truth? See, see, does anyone does anyone really tell the truth? Yeah, um, oh, they'll they'll want something. Everybody always wants something, and that's good. That's desire is progressive. Desire is progressive. Um, so, uh, let's talk about um, a bit of politics, uh, Ashley. Um, so, something I've heard you talk about uh, is how the term uh, far right has lost all its meaning as an insult. Right. Mm -hmm. um, which is, you know, um, like particularly if you're coming from the kind of central left uh, perspective, um, you know, if you're coming at it as a, a, as a sort of central left critic, you know, the far right uh, is doing this and that. Um, but uh, you've talked about how the far right has lost all its meaning as an insult. Uh, because both left and the very, you know, the right-wing extremists both now have problems with capitalism. Um, because I heard you talk about this before, and it was so interesting, <laughs> I wondered if I could just uh, get you to uh, um, talk about that again and elaborate on it if you can. Yeah, I think what's happened on the left is that um, the vast majority of the left has totally given up on on economics. Um, that so for Marx, like most of his life was spent um, trying to understand capitalism. And what most people are surprised to learn when they actually read Karl Marx, because a lot is said about him um, by people who don't bother opening a book, is that he's <laughs> actually quite optimistic about capitalism. In parts of the Communist Manifesto, for example, he, is, he, he sounds like he's singing capitalism's praises. He says it's produced wonders that far surpass the Roman aqueducts and Gothic cathedrals. It has been the first to show what mankind can do. Um, but at, at a certain point, the uh, capitalist is like a, I can't remember the exact words, like a, like a wizard who's uh, unable to control the forces he's conjured up from the netherworld. Um, at a certain point, um, the forces of capitalism come into contradiction with the further progression of wealth. Capitalism lays the foundation for a future in which everyone is so rich. We're, we all live like capitalists. We can work if we want to, but we don't have to. Um, but capitalism can never bring us there because it requires the source of profit is is human labor, according to Marx. Um, and so there's this there's this problem that it creates this world in which no one has to work, but it's premised on everybody having to work. <laughs> and so that was his basis for why we need to move beyond capitalism to make everybody rich. Um, everybody. And, you know, Sylvia Pankhurst, um, you know, said, uh, we do not produce, uh, we do not preach a gospel of want. We want more than all the people can consume. Who on the left believes that now? <laughs> That's gone. The left is mostly like anti-consumerist. Like, I actually saw avowed leftists talking about how UBI would be great because even though it's such a small amount, people consume too much anyway. I mean, that is so antithetical to what the old left was about. It was about forcing capitalism to make good on its promises. You promised us freedom. Well, I really want that freedom. I don't want to have to spend my life working, you know, a little bit of the time for my wages and the rest of the time so Paris Hilton can go on a yacht. 
I want to go on a yacht. <laughs> I want it all. I'm a communist because I'm greedy. Who says that now? I mean, that's gone. So the left has completely lost um, any, they, they just negate capitalism and destroy it. I find that very scary, totally unrealistic. And also uh, because it, the, the progress doesn't work like that. We don't just destroy the world and build something new. It's, it comes out of what already exists. By understanding what exists, we know what the future can be. Um, and, and it's also very alienating to everyday people because everyday people don't want to destroy the whole world. They want a better life. <laughs> um, so that's that, that sort of optimistic understanding of capitalism has disappeared from the left. And we have a lot of, um, a lot of pessimism, a lot of misanthropy, a lot of anti-humanism where it's like, oh, you know, because we've lost that economic critique, which comes out of the, the logic of capitalism itself, we've kind of imbibed this mainstream economics idea that if there are problems, it's because of people want the wrong things, people are irrational, that kind of thing. Um, and so we, we start to explain the problems that arise as what's in between people's ears. It's you, you're the problem. You vote against your own interests, you do this. And we start haranguing the working class and, and blaming them for everything that goes wrong, which goes back to the new left. You know, why wasn't there a revolution while well, the workers were bought off? Well, no one's gonna follow you if you've got such a low opinion of them. And if you, it's like, you know, you wanna go, why would you go follow somebody who wants you to eat vegan food that tastes like crap and like the, the horizon of their expectations, we're all eating bugs because they're a good source of protein. Like that's horrible. I've, <laughs> so, I've, 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 <laughs> I was just yeah. going to jump in. I've, I've, got, I've got, well, maybe a bit of editorialization or a question, but I suppose, do the left and right even exist anymore? I mean, on, on, on the whole, on the average, aren't people tending more, even though they'll, they'll never, never admit it, more to the centrist version of whatever we knew politics to be? I mean, I think left and right, uh, to my mind, these days are just nothing more than historical constructs because... It doesn't matter which side of the divide you fall on, be it left or right. It just seems increasingly the job of either side is to shout the other side down. And when you whittle a lot of... And, and honestly, listening to what you've just described, I'm hard-pressed to, to imagine that any, anything else is actually going on. So if, if we're objective about it, and if people were genuinely honest, are they not just tending more to centrism and just, you know, trying to engage in conflict with the other side just to prove them wrong rather than to actually progress their own underlying ideal, be it left or right. Well, yeah, because nobody has an underlying ideal. It's, oh, there's, there no, <laughs> there's no end game. It's just, I don't like you, so whatever you say, I'm going to say the opposite. It's very childish. Um, but yeah, that's what, that's what people do, is that whatever you know the conservative government says, I'll just say the opposite. It must be bad, it must be wrong. But also, like, the politics politics became personal. When we let go of economics, we basically damned ourselves to a culture war, a, a personal kind of ven personal vendettas, and everybody makes every disagreement very, very personal, because politics has become about good people are the lefties, you know, the nice people who are quite soft and caring, and right-wingers are people who are a bit mean. So I get called a right-winger because I question this whole vulnerability idea around um, therapeutics, because, well, aren't lefties just nice? Well, no. Lefties used to be humanists and um, about freedom, uh, and that's what I'm for. Um, but we've sort of bequeathed that to the right. So there's no principles that underlie this. It's just nice people versus mean people, and then everything becomes very personal, right? So you can't just deal with somebody's ideas. They're a bad person because they have those ideas, or they're a bad person, and I'm a good person. And it's just this us trying to, like, out-virtue each other. But you said, like, do left and right have any meaning anymore? Well, it's it's really illuminating if you go back to what left and right used to mean or where those uh, those words came from, which is from the French Revolution. So the left was the party of, of progress. So seated, seated on the left were those people who wanted to take the French Revolution to its logical conclusions. Um, within that left emerged socialism and communism, um, and particularly the Marxist versions of that, which were about, they said, look, if you want to, if liberals are serious, so liberals were on the left as well, if they're serious about freedom, equality, fraternity, and so on, we can't have that within this particular system because it is based on inequality. Yes, we are freer than we've ever been. Yes, there's a, a possibility of change that didn't exist in feudalism. Yes, this is progressive. But to take the revolution, to really make good on its promises, 
uh, to take it to its logical conclusion, we need another revolution where people will truly be free. So they wanted to move even more, they were even more progressive than the capitalists were. Then on the right side of this were the conservatives who wanted to go back to feudalism, who were very romantic, who wanted to have kings, um, and, and didn't like this idea of, of human equality. Um, they had ideas of, um, well, why didn't it work? Why didn't the French Revolution work? Well, because of human difference, because human beings are different. And the softer side of this was cultural difference. So that everybody has their own culture, cultural differences. There was ideas of climate because people live in different climates, they're gonna be different. And then the, the harsher side of this was race realism. We are biologically different and that's what explains inequality in the world. And I think what's happened is that that progressive left wing has completely collapsed. I mean, there are very few people who believe in those old ideals across the whole spectrum of what the left was after the French Revolution. And what we have now are basically the left, lefty and righty wings of what was old, the old conservative conservatism, the old right. And there are very few people left now who would fit into that more progressive, who would bicker about really whether or not capitalism could produce the goods. We all agree on the goals, freedom, but can capitalism deliver? That was the question. That question's dead now. It's all about human difference. It's all about whose differences matter more. Um, and we've, like, we've got race realism, about, you know, we have that, that kind of very clearly kind of fascist wing that exists. But we also have the cultural side of that, which is about like cultural appropriation and all of these sorts of ideas of human cultural difference um, that see human difference is really, really important. And that old kind of humanist universalist idea of bringing everybody up, that every human being is the same in some very important way because we're all rational. Well, um, that's, that's, that's gone. So, so um, I, I don't know if I've talked about it before on this particular show, but one of my favorite books is, is Factfulness by Hans Rosling. Mm -hmm. which he died before he uh, finished it. Um, but uh, it's a very good book, and it talks about how um, uh, Bill Gates called it um, the essential guide to clear, uh, thinking clearly about the world. And, and, and it is full of all of these uh, statistical sort of overviews of history, which talk about, and he's trying to press home the point that um, the world is bad but getting better, right? So uh, it's getting better all the time and there's lots of reasons for optimism, right? So when you talk about, you know, the idea of, um, uh, you know, I, when you talk about the, the idea of like, is capitalism a question um, and everybody's kind of landed on, well, of course, capitalism and liberal democracy in the West, you know, that's the way, uh, that's the way things are going to be, um, and now and then we sort of fight within that structure. Uh, you have your disagreements within that structure and your agreements, you know. And there's a lot of common ground um, within that structure, right? So uh, you should have a parliament that functions effectively and is elected by people. Uh, you, you, uh, markets are should be generally free, and um, there should be regulators that uh, stop companies having too much power. Uh, within that system, they're, they're all very common. They're all things that we all sort of uh, uh, agree on now. So I, you know, even though there's all this political tension and and the left and right, and uh, one of the things we should talk about is digital media, um, how it kind of amplifies these things. You know, they go from mm -hmm. small things to suddenly being able to 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 find you know build communities, um, political you know movements. Uh, and political communities like QAnon, etc., um, that are that are able to start getting cut through on on other issues. But I, I still remain, uh, you know, a sort of abiding optimist uh, about uh, capitalism. Um, and, and you know, uh, one of, one of the things I wanted to ask you was that you know this whole thing of this story of globalization that Rosling talked about in that book, um, globalization, more, more trade. Uh, you know, borders being more porous, um, you know, companies being bigger and being able to do more because they have more capital. Um, uh, the question is that f for us, that that has been the story of our lifetimes. Uh, you know, me of a certain vintage, 43 now. Right? <laughs> but do you think do you think that process is kind of coming to an end or, you know, is the is that like you said that everybody's agreed on capitalism now as a thing? Is it going to stay? 
everybody's begrudgingly agreed that capitalism is the thing. <laughs> I feel like, you know, the idea of, uh, you know, Margaret Thatcher's famous uh, dictum, uh, there is no alternative to capitalism, which she said so frequently, it was abbreviated to Tina. Um, I mean, I think everybody agrees on that. Whether or not they claim to be, you know, anti-capitalist, I'm not sure that anybody really thinks there's anything beyond capitalism. Um, but we're not happy about it. Um, <laughs> I think, and, and, and I think that's a problem because I think capitalism always has this very progressive push and it also has a backward push. Um, uh, Marx called it r romanticism. Um, and it's without that progressive push, which sees the progressive potential of capitalism to free people from want, um, we risk falling backward. You know, that's really what fascism was about. I think if people have sort of equated fascism now to like strongman racism. Um, but if you actually look at fascist literature, they were very anti-enlightenment. In fact, Goebbels famously said 1789 is abolished. That was the, the motto. Um, the French Revolution is abolished. They wanted to go back. They wanted to go back to hereditary rights, slavery, that kind of thing. Um, and so there's that backward push, but there's no kind of progressive force against that kind of backward push now. I'm not saying that actual fascism has come up again, but I mean, just saying like the extreme, the extreme of that backward, um, that, that rejection of everything that capitalism creates, you know, capitalism is an incredibly progressive force. It's also a destructive force. If you only see the destruction and you have no forward looking vision for progress, you'll of course want to go back, go back to some idyllic place. You know, we have this idea really across the culture. The past was terrible. The future is quite even worse, but the future is awful. And so, well, let's go back to the past or let's maintain the present because it's comfortable. It's safe. We don't know what the future holds. And in fact, uh, the 20th century tells us that things could get very, very bad. And so you have this kind of presentist conservatism. Let's just keep things the way they are. Or let's go back to some golden past um, when, you know, capitalism supposedly worked well or a, even a pre-capitalist. You see a lot of le so-called leftists are very romantic about peasantry. Um, and in fact, a lot of the whole happiness discourse was like looking at places like Boudin Bhutan and saying, oh, look at this happy little kingdom in the Himalayas where everybody just knows their place and isn't it wonderful, which is, you know, it's a futile throwback and people are like very happy yeah, about with, that. Yeah, with, with regards to the immigration side of things. Uh, but Dr. Frawley, I'm, I'm just sort of thinking about that, that, that capitalism has always and is even now more so, uh, more than ever, I, I, I suppose it's, it's, it's been the thing that's dragged us through, you know, the, 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 the first, second, third and now the fourth industrial revolutions. Why is it so tied up with conservatism? Because it both moves forward and destroys. So, um, you know, in the, you know, in early political economy, one of the big questions was uh, why is there a tendency for rates of profit to go down over time? That was, it wasn't, is there a tendency? It was why is there a tendency? And so Marx answered that by saying that the dynamic force of capitalism, which is to push workers out of the uh, production process and to replace them with machines as much as possible, because um, for individual capitalists, that makes you, uh, that increases your profit. But on the whole, since all profit comes from human labor, the rate of profit tends to go down. That was his response to that. Um, but the countervailing tendencies, the attempts uh, to stop that from happening are partially account for the enormous pro progressivism and dynamism of capitalism. So capitalism both, both moves forward and also destroys uh, and also has incredible destruction. So periodically we have crises um, and those will destroy enormous amounts of production. So you'll close down factories and so on. Not because people don't need things anymore. Like, how could you say that we don't have, that we have too much? But also because uh, they're not profitable, right? Yeah, because exactly, yeah. because it stops being profitable. So that, 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 but that's necessary to restore the profit rate. So there's this pull, this push back, but also a move forward. Um, and you can see that that people become as that ability to push forward over those profitability crises becomes less and less. People become more and more pessimistic. Um, well, let's let's just stop trying. You know this that you know. I I think that that paradox of prosperity 
is partially people seeing something happening within capitalism, that we are struggling to continue to progress, that we have periodic crises and so on. And, you know, John Stuart Mill said the same thing. He said it seems as he harmonized this, um, what Marx saw as a destructive tendency within capitalism toward crisis. He said that capitalism is tending toward a harmonious stationary state where we just, we don't keep progressing, we just keep um, reproducing our existence. And you have this and like that's become part of economic, like heterodox economics is this idea of uh, steady state or zero growth, um, which is a, a total pipe dream. It's impossible uh, within the logic of capitalism. Um, but you, you see how people are seeing those tendencies and they, they justify it, they harmonize it, they say actually this is quite a good thing. It's good for the environment, it's good for your soul because you won't want anymore. We just want to hold everything still. So that tendency within capitalism starts to produce, if there's nobody championing that progressive side, um, you, it produces this kind of pessimism and this desire to kind of maintain the present. Um, and I would champion the progressive side of capitalism because <laughs> I think that it is producing a world in which things will be much better for human beings materially, like where we can have a material basis of our lives that I don't have to toil so much <laughs> to reproduce my wage and so on. You know, if I just had, you know, uh, a decent home, a, a very good home, a very good home and access to travel and so on, I could be whatever I want to be. I could do whatever I want to do. Um, and, and I think that capitalism is creating that, but I also think that it's destroying that. And I think if capitalism holds back our freedoms and our wealth and our abundance um, and our ability to produce, then we move beyond capitalism. We don't stay where we are. So, I, you know, that I'm even more of a libertarian than libertarians because I think, <laughs> I think that if, if capitalism holds us back, well, we shouldn't hold back. We just keep going. We have to find a way. I, I need to ask you one thing. Well, I can't believe we've almost been talking for an hour, but I, I need to ask you one question, if you can make time. Um, COVID lockdowns, um, uh, how governments have managed this, right? So we've seen all these incredibly divisive conversations around the world about the approach to this and the management, management of it. Um, uh, and there's the talk about the mental health implications as well uh, and saving lives. So. What have your observation, uh, observations been on the sort of social response to, um, to this crisis? Um, I think it's, uh, it's a weird kind of um, response that kind of shows um, a lot of the, um, the divisions in society and, and, and shows up the lie of a lot of claims that people make. Um, so I think what happened during the sort of coronavirus crisis, at least in the UK, I was basically the complete opposite of what should have happened. Um, so as I said before, the epidemiological profile of the virus was clear right from the very beginning. Um, and, you know, it, it wasn't an equal opportunity killer. Um, and, but it was like every time a young person sadly died, it was all over the news, it was all over social media. This is an equal opportunity killer. Uh, and so all of society had to lock down. All of society had to um, give up freedoms and so on. And yet when people broke lockdown, they were accused of being granny killers and so on. Well, obviously we didn't care that much about grannies, about older people, because we could spend a huge amount of money on a furlough scheme, um, protecting healthy young people. Um, and yet we couldn't marshal a huge, even a huge amount of resources to protecting and shielding the most vulnerable in society who actually had the most to risk. And in fact, um, who we actually sent sick people into care homes. So we like, and now young people are getting the virus. It should have been the other way around. It should have been young people get the virus first uh, and we shield older people and then hopefully herd immunity protects them in the end. But this incredible pessimism, this, inc this incredible inability to understand risk and patterns associated with risk was really revealed. It had to be, you know, risk has to affect everyone equally. Well, that's not how risk works. Risk is patterned. Um, and so it, we we had to have this sort of, we had to democratize, I think in society we like to democratize the bad things. We find it very difficult to democratize good things. Like, everyone should have these freedoms. No one should experience racism. Now it's like, no one should have freedoms. Everyone should experience racism. White people do, you know? And it's, it, it's the same thing. You know, it had to be everybody had to suffer instead of saying, well, let's protect the, the poorest people, uh, the, the, the poorest, um, the people who are most at risk. This has really been a 
fascinating chat and I really uh, appreciate you taking the time uh, getting up early uh, um, to, to join us on the show um, so uh, Ken uh, I know you were saying earlier that uh, you, you, you didn't uh, start the day in a, in a very good place but where would you be on the happiness scale now would you be a seven no man I'm never a seven even on a good day uh, let's be honest I, I, I honestly I it's so subjective, man. I put myself at a five on, on any given day. This scale because, only goes to a six. Yeah, so, so, so I'm, I'm, I'm busting at the seams as we speak. <laughs> yeah. um, Ask yourself if you're happy and you will cease to be so. That's right. Uh, yeah, okay. I, 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 I don't ask unnecessary questions. <laughs> <laughs> exactly, exactly. Uh, you can find us on iTunes at The Bip Show. We're on Twitter. It's at the underscore bip underscore show. And we're on Facebook too. Just search the BIP show. We're also there individually on Twitter at uh, Colgo, at James Whelan42, at Ken Vexler, and uh, Ashley Frawley is on there too. Uh, she is a good presence on Twitter and, uh, and worth a follow. Um, and her book, uh, again, um, The Semiotics of Happiness, and it's being updated at the moment, is it, Ashley? Uh, yeah, I mean, the paperback was released in 2016, and I'm going to produce like a simpler version at some point. But I've also got another book coming out, uh, Significant Emotions, which looks at what I was just talking about, mental health, mindfulness, all of these sorts of things, where they're coming from, why it's, why they keep coming up. Uh, that will be interesting, and maybe when it comes out, we can get you on uh, for another chat. Okay, don't forget to hit subscribe and rate the show. We love those five-star ratings. Thanks, everyone. Uh, James, thank you very much. Thank you, Paul. Thank you, Dr. Frawley. I, I don't know if I feel happier, but I feel better uh, having had this conversation. Does that? Uh, I, I, I can genuinely say that, and that is relative to how I felt an hour ago. I feel better for this. <laughs> so there you go. More at peace with myself. Ken? Uh, I've had my prize confirmed. Um, so, you know, that, that's a positive, surely. Uh, but, yeah, no, thank you very much for, for coming on the show and, uh, yeah, enjoy the chat. Thanks, guys. Thank you. The show is produced by Eamon Connolly and Rick Salter and we will catch you next time. Thanks for listening. Mom deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.